When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. I have with me for today's our, my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace, it's a great honor to uh, have the guest of uh, Bishop, retired Bishop Penrose Hoover. Uh, bishop Penn, can I call you that? Oh, please do. So, Penn, you are a retired bishop in the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and you were bishop of the Lower Susquehanna Synod of the ELCA, and that's some language that maybe not everybody knows. Can you say something about yourself and, and, the, and the role you played there? Sure. The Lower Susquehanna Synod, that's one of those geographical synodical names that might not mean anything to a lot of people unless you're in Pennsylvania, and maybe not even then. Uh, it's uh, it's a relatively small geographical area that had a lot of Lutheran congregations in it, about seven counties in south central Pennsylvania, essentially including the city of Harrisburg, York, Lancaster, and that is almost midway between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, I still live in that area, and it's also the area where I grew up. So, Bishop Hoover, you had some a challenge with alcohol, as I understand it. Well, I'm I'm an alcoholic. The last drink I had was in December of 2007. So I've been in recovery for almost 15 years. 15. Yeah. When I look back on my story, it's uh, no no pun intended, but it's a, it's pretty sobering because I can hardly believe that the story is true, but it is. Uh. Life has been so different in recovery that you tend to forget what it was like beforehand. And I think that's why the story is important to remember. When I was growing up in Harrisburg, uh, my family was not a family that kept alcohol in the home. Not because my parents were opposed to drinking, they just didn't drink, at least not at home. Uh, I can remember a couple of occasions as a child going out to dinner where perhaps there would be a glass of wine with dinner. It was a very rare occasion. And I remember one time going on a Cub Scout camping trip, a father and son sort of thing, where cans of beer were available for uh, the fathers. And uh, I remember my father had a can of beer socially. Mm -hmm. But that, that's about all I can remember about my ever seeing my parents drink. Well, that's interesting because so often um, people say it's genetic and you always find it somewhere back in the line. Was, was there anything further back that you're aware of? Well, that's an interesting question. I've done a little bit of genealogical research. And when I was doing it, I realized that I knew almost nothing about my grandfather on my maternal side. And in doing some research on him, I discovered that he uh, suffered, as they all did, he suffered rather greatly during the Great Depression. 
and eventually was found dead of what was said to be a heart attack by my mother at the time, at a relatively young age. Uh, but nothing was ever talked about about that. I only found out about that through his obituary. Hmm. There, were, there were no stories about him, no, yeah, no discussion. Yeah. And so I began asking myself, okay, at the time, at, at that time, what was the family, what were family secrets? What were, what were things that happened in, in families that nobody talked about? And, well, alcoholism came to mind. I can't prove it. Uh, there's nobody left for me to ask, specifically. I've tried all the relatives. And interestingly enough, his grandchildren, who are still around, uh, my cousins, none of them ever remember having heard a story about him. Hmm. So uh, I rather suspect that he was an alcoholic, but I can't prove it. And I would never have expected that, of course, had I not become an alcoholic myself. So it is unusual, I guess. So, Bishop, you grew up in, a, it sounds like, a pretty normal uh, drinking family. It doesn't sound like there was a lot of uh, heavy drinking going on there. No, there was essentially no drinking going on. Uh, I did have yeah. some contact with alcohol in that my father had a second job working as a clerk in a liquor store, a state store at the time. And that was always kind of an adventure. It was back in the days when all the booze was kept in the back. And you went in and walked up to the counter and said what you wanted. And they'd go and get it for you. Uh, and I was, I was just a very small child. But I remember he worked late some evenings. And uh, my mother would take me and we'd drive down to pick him up after work. You know, I was always kind of fascinated that, wow, you know, he works in a place that sells alcohol. <laughs> and I don't know why that was an issue, except that maybe it, it, it just seemed so different because there was never that was never a part of our lives in any other way. How old were you then when he was doing oh, that? Oh, I was four or five, maybe. Okay. But, not, but it wasn't part of my daily life in any way. I did, I think, first begin to be fascinated by alcohol through popular entertainment, hmm. TV shows. Looking back on it now, there was a lot of drinking going on on TV shows. Yeah. And it was always very uh, macho or romantic, very desirable in one way or another. Yeah. And the, the, the interesting thing about that, with all of the, the, the drinking that went on on these shows, almost nobody ever got drunk, at least not the good guys. <laughs> The bad guys might appear drunk, but not the good guys. And, hmm. and, and so, it, you know, not only was alcohol portrayed as being uh, macho, noble, and suave, uh, it, it was also, if you were a good guy, uh, harmless. Hmm. And I, I think that was pretty much my view of it. If you chose to drink, you know, it wouldn't hurt you if you were a good guy. And of course, I was a good guy. So that, that wasn't going to be a problem for me. Although at that plan, at that time, I can't say I ever planned to drink. It was just uh, part of a fantasy make-believe world that kids build for themselves. Hmm. So I, I think that with that being part of the milieu of my growing up, I was probably primed to at least try drinking when the opportunity presented itself. And the opportunity did not present itself until I got to college. Hmm. Really? That's unusual. Yeah, believe it or not, I got through high school without ever having had the opportunity <laughs> to drink. So you must have been running with the right kids then. Uh, I guess I was. Yeah. I was with kids who were pretty much like me. 
And you must have been occupied with studies and sports and things because it's usually the kids that are not doing any of that. You get bored and, and drink. Oh, yeah. I was busy for my teenage years. Uh, I was socially active, went to a lot of social affairs. And back in those days, we're talking late 50s, early 60s. There were a lot, not only the prom, but if you were with the right crowd, there were a lot of dress-up affairs, uh, demolay, other social clubs where you, you and your girl would get dressed up to go to a dance mm -hmm. or something like that. And to my knowledge, maybe I was naive, alcohol just wasn't part of the picture. But were you aware that it was anywhere else? I mean, it wasn't in your circles, but did you know of it? No, nope. oh, no. Nope. Interesting. Like I said, maybe I was just blind to it or not, not paying attention, but uh, mm. I, don't, I don't know of any of my friends that, that drank in high school. Mm. Heck, looking back on it, we didn't even smoke. But, uh, Interesting. <laughs> so then you get to college. And then I got to college. Yeah, <laughs> then, you know, things changed a little bit in college. I, I went to Gettysburg College, which was a dry campus officially. But, of course, there was alcohol available if you wanted it. You know, there were plenty of ways to get it. And I guess I got through the first year before uh, alcohol was even readily available. Uh, then I joined a fraternity. Mm. And there would be off-campus parties where beer would be available. I didn't drink much uh, beer. I didn't like it. didn't really appear to me. But at the same time, I was beginning to, you know, get get into that. I certainly didn't object to it. And I got introduced to hard liquor through a masterful experiment in self-deception. <laughs> My roommate and I were taking a psychology course, and we were dealing with, I don't remember what we were dealing with. <laughs> with good reason, I don't remember. <laughs> uh, but we decided that we would uh, intentionally set out to get drunk because neither of us had ever been drunk. But in order to make this uh, a meaningful enterprise, we decided to conduct it as an experiment. In that, we started a tape recorder, an old reel-to-reel -reel thing that would run forever, and we recorded the alcohol that we were drinking, both in terms of the, the, time, the amount of alcohol and the time that we drank it. And we were in the fraternity house. And uh, Were you doing this experiment on your own, or was this part of a class you were doing? Oh, we, we were doing it on our own. Okay. We called it an experiment. Yeah. You know, uh, like I said, it was self-deception. What we really wanted to do is get drunk. And uh, this was the way we justified it to ourselves. Gotcha. I don't remember much about it. I don't know where the notebook is now, but I did run across <laughs> it several years ago. And most of it is illegible, <laughs> except for the first couple lines. Right. The, uh, the last conscious memory that I have is sitting on the floor in my fraternity room and looking at the bottle, the whiskey bottle that was sitting across the room from me on the desk. And it was a little confusing because I saw four bottles and uh, I knew there was only one, but I could very clearly see four. And it wasn't like blurred double vision. I could read the label on each one of them. Uh, and that concerned me because I thought when I was ready for another drink, how was I going to tell which bottle uh, I, should, I should take? 
and uh, and the fact that that didn't occur to me to be an ir- an irrational thought at the time it says <laughs> the fact that I was pretty drunk already at that point. <laughs> but that's the last I remember of the evening. And uh, when I woke up in the morning quite early, I felt fine. The room was a wreck, and I was naked in bed, covered with a sheet. I don't know how that happened. But my fraternity brothers had taken care of me. You know, I was evidently just a disgusting blind falling down drunk that threw up all over the room in various places. And they ended up not knowing what else to do. They ended up throwing me into the shower, uh, hence taking the wet clothes off of me and uh, putting me to bed. But I had evidently uh, thrown up enough that I had gotten a lot of it out of my system because I didn't really have a hangover. Mm. I, I felt pretty good. And I, I'm looking at the room, and I have no idea uh, how it got that way. But all I could say to myself was, wow, you know, that, that's, that's really something. Uh, it, you might think that would make me more cautious about drinking, but all it did was pique my interest. <laughs> but that, that was the first time that I was actually drunk, and I was really drunk. I, I'm not sure that I was ever that drunk again. Even even as as I became uh, alcoholic, because uh, my tolerance increased, and uh, I could be pretty drunk, but not act as drunk as I was that mm. first time. Right. I did. I didn't really feel bad about it uh, because I think we deceived ourselves rather effectively. But I, but definitely it was the slippery slope. And when I got married, I, I married a woman who was uh, a native German who I met when I was in uh, grad school and seminary in Chicago. So did the drinking start then? Did you start drinking more often after that? Yes, yeah, and I learned to like beer. Okay. Beer was turned out to be preferable to whiskey at that point. Mm. But I didn't drink regularly, and I didn't drink a lot, and certainly not daily. But at, at social occasions, if it was available, then I would certainly drink. But I don't recall getting drunk again in college. Again, when I, when I married uh, Elizabeth, she came from a culture in Germany where alcohol was simply a part of the culture. And so as I got to know her and her family, whenever we would visit over there, uh, wine would be served with almost every meal. Other alcohol was readily available. Her family tended to drink more wine than beer, but the German beer was, wow, German beer is really good. And uh, that's probably I miss the most, if anything. And everybody was drinking. But it remained very much a family affair, social affair. And it didn't it didn't really become a kind of uh, buffer for for my life until my wife was diagnosed with uh, metastatic cancer. And, And how old are you then? I would have been in my 30s, I guess. And had you gone to seminary and gotten? I was uh, I was yet? a pa- I was a pastor by that time. Okay. Uh, drinking was a regular part of our lives. At that point, we were you know enjoying a cocktail before dinner, and that sort of thing. So we did drink at home, but it wasn't really questioned by anybody, and I didn't see it as a a problem. But it but it was now a part of my life in a way that had never been before. Mm-hmm. In any case, once uh, once we got that cancer diagnosis, 
we then began round after round of chemotherapy and treatment that, as it turned out, would last 24 years. Oh, my. And over that, that space of time, I, I gradually drank more and more and more because there was it, it was stress control. At least that's what I was telling myself. So now I drink before bed mm. to, to sleep better. Of course, you don't sleep better, but you think you right. do. And when Elizabeth would go away for a time, she, when she felt well enough, uh, she'd go back to Germany for a few weeks to, uh, to see her family. And as long as she was well enough to do that, I couldn't, I couldn't always get free to go with her. Being home alone, I would drink more. And that was when I began the, the cycle of drinking alone. And, you know, when you drink alone, at least in my case, I drank a whole lot more than I ever drank socially. And I began to look forward to the opportunities to be alone so that I could drink. And because uh, it had come on me kind of gradually, I, it, never, it never really concerned me. It seemed like something I wanted to do, made me feel pretty good while I was doing it, and uh, I didn't see it as a problem. But of course, by then, it was a problem. So how was that? How was it becoming a problem? It was, were people noticing? Were you having uh, consequences? I think people were noticing, but nobody was saying anything about it. And because Elizabeth drank regularly, she didn't, at that point, she didn't drink as much as I did. But because it was still a regular part of life, I think she found it difficult to, to say anything to me because, you know, I could, I'd simply say, well, you drink too, you know. I remember one time we had gone to another town in two different cars. We had had a few drinks, but uh, I was I had drank a whole lot more than she did because uh, I had been alone all day. And on the way, she had stopped to get gas and left her gas cap on the pump. And I said, well, I'm going to drive down there and get it. Well, I got pulled over. And of course, I was drunk. And they gave me a roadside sobriety test, which I, I knew I was failing miserably. <laughs> and uh, incredibly, these two nice officers scolded me and drove me home. You know, and that was that. That's as close as I ever came to a DUI. All those years, I never had a DUI. Mm. <laughs> and I think a lot of that has to do with the shield of clergy. You know, we're, we're held to a different standard. And if we violate that standard, people either think one of two things. Either we know what we're doing and there must be something good going on. Or secondly, uh, well, you know, it's, uh, it's just the way he or she is. And, uh, and they're still a good pastor. And, and so we certainly wouldn't want to stir the waters by saying anything about it. I think that has changed or is changing, and, and that's, that's for the better. If there had been a meaningful intervention back then, I don't know if it would have worked, but the fact is it wasn't going to happen. Mm. I think I can say, honestly, it wasn't affecting my work. I was regarded as being a, a very competent pastor, a good preacher, and uh, the fact that I was drinking pretty heavily 
didn't reflect on my work. And at some point, I remember having a conversation. I don't remember who it was with. But someone said, well, you know, I don't know if you're an alcoholic, but whatever it is, you're functional. <laughs> and and that's the, the, the famous functional phrase, the functional alcoholic. Well, they, you know, they say that for alcoholics, usually the last thing to go bad is their work because they hold on to that as evidence that they're they're fine because they do such good work. And, and that was absolutely true for me, you know, because yeah. you could lift that up and see, well, it's not affecting my work was affecting my own life. My kids were worried about it. My wife was worried about it. But at work, everything was fine. Yeah. Then after the 24 years, my, my first wife died from the cancer. And that's really when things collapsed in on me for the first time. I, I was drinking a lot, even more than I had been drinking before. And now it did begin to affect my work. And I knew it, but at that point, I didn't care. I was also depressed, which I didn't, didn't know because it's hard to tell the difference. It, things were just going to get worse and worse. And there were a few friends and my, and my kids who tried to do an intervention. They didn't really know how to do it. And I blew it off. Mm. The usual, well, it's none of your business, or you know, I you, maybe you have a point. Now, I'll, I'll consider it. You know, deflection. Mm. And incredibly, in the middle of all this, within the next couple of years, I, I married again, which I, I didn't think could happen. I wasn't looking for it. And the woman that I married had been a professional colleague in years past, and she had been divorced maybe 20 years before. And she was a wonderful, wonderful, sweet person. And neither one of us saw this coming. We, we, we truly did just fall in love out of the blue. And, and we married, and mm. she was concerned about my drinking, but I think that she felt that she handled it, that she could handle me. And I think that worked for a little while. And by a little while, I mean a couple of months. But then something else happened in the middle of all this. I got called to be bishop. <laughs> now, you might ask, how could that possibly have happened? <laughs> and and I, I actually asked the same question. <laughs> right. You do because wonder. that was not something, <laughs> honestly, it wasn't something that I sought or, or, or desired. It was something that was just happened literally out of the blue. So that I assume that went through the ecclesiastical ballot where you were at a, a Senate assembly and you were That's other correct. people were running and you got nominated and and so between each of these votes, there uh, you're getting up and talking and answering whatever questions they throw at you and this whole assembly decided this is our next bishop. Uh, even then, I was good on my feet. Mm -hmm. All I really did to get into that process was not say no. I was so sure that nothing was going to come of it. I approached the whole thing in a very relaxed way. And I think that kind of backfired because, <laughs> because I was so at ease. Because you, you didn't want, you didn't care if you got it. And that's what made you appeal. Exactly. <laughs> in fact, people even said that to me. They'd say, well, that's why we need to vote for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little crazy, uh, but I guess maybe that's the way the spirit works. In, in any case, I'm bishop, and, and my wife was, uh, we weren't married yet. We were engaged. 
But my fiance was amazingly supportive. And I even said to her that this is something that she didn't sign up for. And if she felt that this was not something that she could handle and wanted to bail, I would understand. I didn't want to see that happen, but I would understand if it did. And she simply said, she always said the right thing. She said, I signed up to be with you. And if that means I have to be a bishop's wife, then that's what I'll do. And I think that was her whole approach as my drinking became even more acute after that. Mm. But now I couldn't hide it anymore. And it really did deeply concern my staff. So was this a staff that you inherited? or did you it, At this point, them? it was the staff I inherited. I, I mm-hmm. asked them to stay on because I, I didn't know what I was doing. And they did. Uh, so I, I needed them. I, I needed them to teach me. And, of course, they figured out pretty quick that they couldn't teach a drunk. And finally, after only a few months of, of my being bishop, the, my staff, uh, most of whom I would, had been at least acquainted with before. How, how, how were they seeing that? Oh, I was, uh, you know, uh, showing up late, going home early, uh, uh, not, getting, not keeping appointments on time. Probably at, at that point, probably smelling of alcohol most of the time, mm-hmm. uh, and and I and I was worried too. I, at that point, I, mm. I thought this is now something I need to deal with, but I did not know how, and I did not know if I had it in me to, you know, say, you know, good good grief, I'm the bishop and and I'm a, I'm I'm a drunk. Uh, well, and you must have been internally making uh, resolving to control it or get it under control and well I was certainly I, I was certainly moving in that direction but I just didn't you know who do you turn to or let alone a bishop let alone a pastor who, who does the pastor talk to uh, if not the bishop. something like that not in this right. case not the bishop <laughs> right. well in most cases later on that changed but uh, well right but for you it would be if you're in recovery and you're my bishop, I could come to you, but most pastors aren't going to go to their bishops with this problem. Exactly. Uh, well, the, the staff organized an actual intervention. Hmm. You know, they, we had a they scheduled a meeting, you know, and I didn't, I wasn't entirely clear what the meeting was, but that didn't matter because I wasn't entirely clear what most of the meetings were for. <laughs> when I look back on it, it's, it's actually kind of amusing. <laughs> because it was my staff, and it was a couple of members of Synod Council, lay people. And I realized later on that they had planned this very carefully, and they all had, mm. they all had something, they had a script. They all had yeah. something that they were going to say. And what they weren't ready for was the fact that I turned out to be ready for this. Mm. Uh, they were anticipating a bad scene. But when I realized what was happening, I think one or two of them had spoke, and I think it was the uh, the synod secretary who had been in the position for a long time. And and I remember him saying, "Bishop, this is this is a difficult job that you have, and we want you to do it, and we want you to do it well. And you can't do it unless you get some help." Uh, you're, you have a, you have a drinking problem and we need to, we need to get you into treatment for that, but you can't do the job unless you do that. And it was, it was a relief. Hmm. I was relieved to, to hear that. 
And I said, okay, I'll do whatever you say. Just tell me what to do because I don't know how to do it. And, and <laughs> at that point, it was like, wait a minute, we're not done. We've got some other stuff <laughs> right. we need to say. We wrote all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that was too easy. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com, and click on the Donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. So what was your, when you realized what was going on when you walked in that room, that had to be kind of a powerful moment. Well, it was. And, and as I said, my, my primary feeling was relief. Yeah. So it's, it's finally, it's finally over. It's finally, it's finally, it's, or at least it's finally has a chance to be over. Right. I right. don't, I don't know what this means. I don't know where it's going, but I know it can't stay where it is. And, yes. uh, uh, and if these good folks are willing to give me a chance to, because they could have just simply said, you need to resign. Yeah, right. Which is amazing because when, what year was this? This would have been 2007. Yeah, okay. With Christmas approaching. Uh, this was early in December. But still a remarkable response from a Senate staff where I think typically the, the thing would be, let's just get rid of them. Yeah. But they, you know, they did it that. They found a treatment facility. That could take me like right away. I, I'll, I'll say where it was because it, it, it's a great place. It's called Marworth. Uh, mm, it's it's up near Scranton, in northeastern Pennsylvania. And they, you know, they they set it all up. And Sharon, my wife, drove me up there on Monday morning, and uh, I was admitted, and began the twenty-eight day journey in in a treatment facility which was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. So how are you feeling driving up there? A little bit scared? I was drunk. 
<laughs> I had somebody said to me, I don't remember who, but you know, when the thing was set up, they they made it pretty clear that they didn't want me to try to stop drinking before I came. Hmm. Turns out there's a medical reason for that. But uh, because the oh, first withdrawals. yeah, we, they didn't want to, didn't want an uncontrolled withdrawal. Right. So I I had had a couple of drinks in the morning before we left. <laughs> and yeah, I was nervous. I was a little scared. But again, I was more I think I was more hopeful and more interested in in you know seeing what was going to happen now. And just letting it go, just turning everything over and you know do with me what you will, you know, I'll do it. And it was an excellent program uh and I met such wonderful people. This was the kind of facility that attracted people from literally all walks of life. There was even somebody, and I don't know who it was, but somebody arrived by helicopter oh uh, to to check in. Oh uh, there were some people in government positions that were I to say their names, you would recognize them, hmm. and uh, and then there were you know people who did maintenance work, uh, everything, you know, cops, firefighters, physicians. And and we were all there for the same reason. It opened doors in terms of our conversations with one another that you wouldn't, doors that you didn't even know were there. And for me, uh, there were two things. One of the things was I was told by the staff and by my counselor that I should not tell people that I'm a bishop or a clergyman because that, that would perhaps, you know, Make people try to look to me as an example, or come to me mm -hmm. for help, or or whatever. Yeah. Well, that didn't stay secret for long. Uh, somehow that got out, and uh, I certainly didn't lift it up. In fact, I tried very hard not to. But it was something that people did know, and uh, and it did come up from time to time. One of the things that uh, was said to me at one point. Uh, was after lunch in the cafeteria where another uh, inmate, we called ourselves inmates, yeah, uh, right. which which drove the staff crazy. And they, they, <laughs> they just said, you're patients, you're not inmates. And we said, yeah, right. Uh, can we leave? <laughs> no. Uh, okay, we're inmates. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it was that kind of mentality. You know, I, I, I'm not a veteran uh, and I've never been in prison, but people were saying this is like a... a, a a cross between uh, being in the military and being incarcerated. And one guy said, and I've done both and I can attest. This <laughs> <laughs> is very much like that. <laughs> this, one, uh, this one other inmate who was a pathologist and had made it very clear, almost as a challenge to me, is that he, did, he had no religious beliefs. That, you know, he was an atheist, in fact. I said, okay, whatever. But he, say, he said, I, I want to ask you a very serious question. And I said, okay. And he said, and I, I even remember how he phrased it. He said, you have risen to a position of high responsibility in your church. How is it that your personal spirituality did not prevent your addiction? Huh. And uh, that, was a, uh, that, that was a really, really hard question because it was a question I was asking myself. Because now we're working the steps now, and we're we're like now in step three, yeah. and and everybody's trying to figure out what their higher power is, and they all and they're all looking at me and, and thinking that I've got it figured out. <laughs> right, right. 
which I realized at this point is not really the case, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. How long, oh Lord, will you be silent? <laughs> <laughs> right. But it was a good, it was just the question that I needed because uh, I began to then talk about that. And, you know, I'd say to these other people, I'd say, look, I'm at the same point you are. You know, the only difference is perhaps, you know, I have the belief. I was beginning to question whether I had the faith, but uh, maybe you don't have that. I've got the background, but I'm trying to figure this out the same way you are, because it, it, you know, obviously it hasn't been working for me. And I came to a couple of conclusions in the course of it. And one of them was that over the years, I had become a religious professional Mm. and a good one. Uh, And I prayed frequently, daily. And I prayed for all sorts of people and all sorts of things, but almost never did I pray for myself. I prayed for everybody else. And I was always there for everybody else. You know, the phone calls in the middle of the night, the automobile accidents that you run to the emergency room. Uh, of course, you leave your family alone at home when you go and do that. But uh, so I wasn't really there for them, but I certainly wasn't there for me. And, and that was a key for, that began to open the door to my recovery. And I began, I began to become to have a greater understanding of spirituality as what we would call today mindfulness. That word wasn't used in the 2007. And I was having trouble understanding what people were trying to tell me. But now I understand that, you know, it's really living in the moment and uh, laying aside projection and, uh, and regret and living in the moment and, and letting my higher power, which I feel very close to, have control. And I think that that was the key to to really opening the doors to complete the the twelve steps and and uh, continue to to work the steps. So it's uh, it's it's been a blessing. It I think it's made me a better person, a better pastor. And the proof of the pudding. Well, no, I shouldn't put it that way because there's no proof of anything. <laughs> but uh, the. It was kind of amazing that after I got into recovery and continued out in outpatient therapy for another four months after I, after I was discharged from the inpatient facility, my wife, Sharon, uh, we, were mar- we were married in 2007. We got married before I went into treatment. And she, she, she hung in there for the whole thing. And, and she was my rock through, through all of it. But then uh, five years later, she was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease. Oh, no. Jeez. And it progressed rather rapidly. I was able to retire in 2013. I was over retirement age at that point anyway. And we were able to have a couple of really good years together, even though her disease was progressing. We were able to travel and, and, and enjoy life together. And then in 2016, she had a stroke which hastened the inevitable with the Alzheimer's, and she died six months later. And um, I think if people, I didn't hear anybody say they were worried about me at that point. I was worried about me. 
but I, I did not consider drinking. I did consider suicide, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, didn't, uh, I didn't drink. What I did end up doing, on the advice of my pastor at that point, who knew my whole story, what I did do was get into therapy. And I'm still in therapy. I talk to my therapist about uh, once every two weeks now. And, uh, and that has studied me and grounded me. And I have, uh, I have no desire to drink. I'm not going to meetings right now because meetings kind of fell apart uh, during the pandemic. I'm hoping that they're going to get started again. I'm waiting to see what happens. The, my, reg my regular home group is not reformed at this point. Mm. But, um, uh, but that's okay. I'm feeling okay uh, with that. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty steady. I, I'm exercising regularly. I'm taking care of myself. I, uh, I actually feel better than I have in years right now. And I think all of that is a, a reflection of the continuing journey of recovery. I'm still very careful to say that, mm. uh, you know, I, I, I've never used the phrase recovered alcoholic because I don't believe there are any. I'm still a recovering alcoholic. Mm. I'm still an alcoholic. And uh, mm. one, one, of the, one of the best things I can probably say to illustrate this those of our listeners who have been in therapy or have been in, in uh, structured rehabilitation might have heard this story. And I'll be interested to see if you have, Ed. When I was at Marworth, they showed, they showed us uh, a really, really old movie. <laughs> By really old movie, I mean, you know, it was real to real on a screen and uh, 16 millimeter. And it had been made sometime in the 50s, I think. So everybody looked really 50-ish because of what? Because... It was 50s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was called The Sleeping Tiger. It's a metaphor, and it may not be medically correct, but it works. The idea is that alcoholics are born with a little tiger inside them. Not everybody gets the tiger, hmm. but alcoholics have this little tiger inside them, and you don't even know it's there. And as you're growing up, the little tiger is mostly a kitten inside you, and it's, it's having a good time, and it's, you know, nobody knows, you don't even know about it. But if you start drinking, the tiger likes that. And, and the tiger will, will do what it can to keep you doing that, and the tiger will start to grow. And as the tiger gets bigger and bigger, it then begins to control you. If you stop drinking, the tiger goes to sleep, and and you can the tiger will stay asleep as long as you don't take a drink. And we're saying, okay, okay, fine, got it. But then, but then, but then here's the twist: even though it's sleeping, the tiger keeps growing, and it gets bigger mm -hmm. and bigger while it's asleep. So that if you start drinking again. The tiger is going to be much bigger and much more fierce than it was when it went to sleep. And now it will literally eat you from the inside mm -hmm. out. And uh, in my therapy group, the guys in my therapy group at, at Marworth, you know, really resonated with that. And we made a pact. <laughs> 
I remember, you know, we had our hands in the middle of the circle. We say, if we ever get out of here, <laughs> we we hereby pledge to one another that we will we will all get a tattoo of a sleeping tiger. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I don't know if any of them did because I lost touch with all of them pretty quickly. They were we were from all over the place. Yeah. But I never did get my sleeping tiger tattoo. Uh, so I don't know if any of us kept the pact. But uh, a couple of years ago, being newly widowed again uh, and looking for th- being retired and looking for things to do, I decided I'd get a tattoo just to see what it was like. And I did. And I liked the tattoo and I kind of liked the experience. So then I said, OK, <laughs> yes. Well, well. Really? <laughs> what is the matter with you? <laughs> I, wait, what can I say? I, I, I'm a man for all seasons. Um, <laughs> um, well, it was for one thing. It was it was a wonderful experience to hang out with people who, in other contexts, would probably scare me. You know, I saw a whole a whole population that I really didn't know I existed and I wasn't at all familiar with. So that was pretty cool. Right. Uh, I, I learned some stuff. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, and it isn't ba- as bad as you think it is. At least I, I didn't think it was. But um, after I had the first tattoo, I thought, now, now it's time to do a sleeping tiger. I could not find a, a sleeping tiger tattoo that suited me. And I talked to the artist and he tried some stuff and none of it quite, quite worked. Hmm. And then I saw this one that I'm going to show you. Our, our, our listeners won't be able to see it, but you'll be able to see it, Ed. That I, I thought, that's what I'm going to get, because it's not a sleeping tiger. It's the tiger reawakened. And I see it every morning. Mm. And it reminds me that I don't want to wake that sucker up today. So I'll see if you can <laughs> see if you can that's, see that. Yeah. Okay, he's rolling up. Oh, my, that's impressive. It's on your left bicep, and it takes up the whole thing, and you got big biceps, so it's a big tiger. <laughs> well, it's pretty fierce. Yeah, that would keep me. That would get your attention. So I see. I see it every day, and uh, that's nice. That's a big tattoo. So how how was it going back to the office and back into ministry after? Well, that was tough. That was difficult because I felt I felt very fragile in almost every way. Uh, and a little uncertain in, in my dealings with people, yeah. which was something I had never felt before. But, you know, that's good. That, 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 that dimension opened in me. Um, most of the people I dealt with were very supportive. There were a lot of people I learned, not only, not only lay people, but some clergy, who were genuinely offended that I did not resign. But I did not feel that resignation was the answer. And I also did did believe and do believe that however messy the ecclesiastical ballot is, you know, this is a call uh, and the spirit is involved in it somewhere. Mm, absolutely. And I did not feel that I, I, I had the privilege of resigning, which would be the easy way out. And I, I felt that the, that I felt that my higher power, I felt that God would give me strength to complete this task, uh, and and God did do that. But I had to make some decisions about how I was going to handle some things. 
And one of them, of course, is Eucharist. Mm. Being, being bishop, you know, I presided at Eucharist a lot. Oh, right. And our synod, the Loris Husqvarna Synod, uh, has historically been pretty ceremonial, mm-hmm. what uh, you guys in the Midwest would call high church. High church, <laughs> yep. And under some circumstances, you know, the, 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 the liturgy would call for the bishop to commune himself or herself. Right. And uh, I had to decide how I, what I was going to do. And, and I decided that what I was going to do was not take the wine, not drink the wine at all. No intinction, no grape juice. Mm-hmm. You know, if they were offered grape juice or something like that, I wasn't going to do that. Oh, why not the grape juice? If I can't have the actual wine of the sacrament, why would I want the grape juice? It, and, and then the other piece of it, spiritually, what, what the celebration of the Eucharist became for me was a reminder of how broken I am and how much I need the redemption of the sacrament. Hmm. And, and so when I, would, when I would celebrate, I would simply elevate the cup. And not and not drink of it, but a reminder of your own brokenness. I mean, the sacrament became a, just a reminder of your own brokenness and and the grace. Exactly. And and as as Lutherans, of course, we affirm that the the true sacrament is completely present in either kind. Right. So uh, I wasn't I wasn't really missing out on anything sacramentally, and it turned out that. Uh, this visible abstention became very meaningful for a lot of people. That way, and I didn't, I, I didn't try to call attention to it. Right. You know, I, I simply, you know, just did it that way. It's what you had to do for yourself, but it turned out to be a blessing for many. Yeah, and the and the upshot of all of that was because oh, I forgot to mention that when I went into treatment, I had a couple of days before I, I had to go. And in that time, I wrote a letter to all the congregations that stated explicitly that I was going into treatment for alcoholism uh, and I, how long I expected to be gone. And I expected to return, but of course, it was in God's hands. So this was not, you know, for me, Alcoholics Anonymous was never really personally anonymous. <laughs> Uh, I, I couldn't, I couldn't be anonymous. I, you know, you live in a fishbowl and I decided it was better to be upfront and honest about it. The way we had always been with, with my, my wife's illnesses, because if you don't put the truth out there, people will make stuff up and, uh, and, and then it's just worse. Yeah. So I, I wanted the true story to be, to be visible. So everybody knew everybody was paying attention. No, as, and as you know, Pastor, many are not paying attention. Right, yeah. uh, but uh, the, but everybody that was paying attention knew that that I was uh, an alcoholic. And as a result of this, I began hearing from pastors in the Senate mm. who had some questions, you know, and so and it was very tentative. And sometimes it was like asking for a friend. You know? Sure, right, right. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's and, a, it's uh, a touchy subject. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I I was able, thank God, to be helpful to some of them. Some of them it didn't make it. Mm. 
but those who did, and there was there was one pastor in particular who I didn't know this, but and I had known him for many years. I had known him actually as a boy. I was I'm old enough to be his father, and uh, I got him into treatment, and he's doing has been doing very very well, and he goes around telling people that I saved his life and his vocation. <laughs> And uh, I wish he wouldn't do that, but I know why he's doing that. And I'm so glad that the gift I was given of, of recovery is now become a gift that I can help others with yeah. on, on, this, on this journey. So I think the outcome has been a good one. Well, you've been a lot more open than you needed to be, which has been a blessing. And I know it's not what probably a lot of people like or want to hear. And so I'm grateful for that. You're, you know, it's our stories that are redemptive, not just for ourselves, but for others. And that's what I just heard you say. So what a gift that is. And I also really, really admire. I, I got sober 35 years ago, and I was five years clean and sober before I went to seminary. And then I met these pastors who got clean and sober while being pastors. And I think, how the hell did they do that? Because I know how fragile I was. And in those first several years, um, to be in an environment like a parish or even worse, being a bishop and the pressures you're under, I just think uh, what a miracle it is that anybody could get well under those circumstances. That's phenomenal. It really is. Well, it speaks well of the higher power. I can say it sure that. Does. <laughs> yeah. I think so. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you, that, that observation. No one has ever said that to me, that, I, that I, I'm more open than I need to be. When I talk about it, I don't know how to be less open. I, I don't think I can really withhold anything because I don't want to ever again begin lying to myself. Mm. And, and that's, a lot of, that's a lot of it. I was lying to myself for a long, long time. I was lying to everybody else, too. Right, but, but, the, but you know as well as I do the nature of this is uh, people don't want to hear it. They want it hush-hush. When I applied to my first call, I'd put in my paperwork that I was in recovery and a member of the Fellowship Recovering Lutheran Clergy, and the bishop called and said, you don't need to share that. That's for you. And he was being supportive. But it just kind of goes to the thing was, let's keep these stories quiet because it'll disturb people. And that's why I said, you have been uh, outspoken, but unless people share their stories, other people don't get well and saved. And uh, so I appreciate over the years you've shared your story because it has helped. It's helped me. It's helped... <laughs> Uh, who knows how many? Well, I, I, I'm glad to know that. And, and I, I would simply say that as bishop, uh, that's not the advice I ever gave. Right. I wouldn't expect that from you, no. The pastors that I, I worked with, I, I told them explicitly, you know, if you're going to go look for another call, you have to be upfront about this. Right. You know, they might not want to hear it, but it's got to be there. Because, again, if you don't put it out there, and you get into a conflict in your parish, which you will, right. somebody's going to find out. And use it against you. And then it's going to be used against you. Yeah. And well, that's, that's why it's, they're the ones that have to deal with it. You're dealing with it. Yeah. But if you're going to be their pastor, they have to deal with it too. Yeah. So why is this such a difficult topic for the church as a whole? I suppose it's, uh, it's as difficult for the church as it is for society. Uh -huh. And there is still within the church, whether we admit it or not, there is still that sense of stigma and guilt that this is somehow a, a sinful failing. 
to be sure there are character flaws involved, but they, we hope that they can be addressed uh, and they are addressed in recovery. But it's, it's an illness. It is that tiger inside you that you didn't put there that has taken over your life. And the fact that we see it as some kind of a moral failing, and we do. I mean, that was something I had to deal with. You know, I felt, you know, I, I couldn't for a while. I didn't want to talk about it because it was, you know, some kind of moral failing. And I came to see that that wasn't the case. And I, that, I think that's part of what allowed me to be more open. But I think within the church, there's still that, that feeling, partly because there's no education about it. Yeah. After I was out of treatment and back within the Conference of Bishops, I had other bishops come to me and ask me how to deal with it when they have a pastor who clearly has a problem and they, and they don't know what to do. I think, I think education is something that needs to happen. And, that, and if that means, you know, keep sitting outside of doorways and keep pounding on windows, uh, you know, that, that's what we have to do. Mm. Because we're, we're still not really dealing with it. Right. You know, the, the AA groups still meet in the basement right. and, and never get invited upstairs. Right. Uh, yeah. In fact, in many cases told, don't go upstairs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> stay down there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And use the side door by all yeah, means. That's right, that's right. Um, we've all done that. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay because I'm not there to go to church. I'm there to, to have a different kind of spiritual experience with, with people who I will say without being snarky or in many cases more spiritual than the people I meet on Sunday mornings. Yes. Right. There's spirituality there that's genuine. It's authentic. It's real. And what's really striking about 12 step groups is the diversity. Uh-huh. Uh, rich people, black, white, orange, yellow. I mean, it, it, and everybody's the same and everybody's got something to share and to offer and nobody's in charge. <laughs> exactly. Well, Bishop, I so appreciate your time and your willingness to share this story. And as people listen to it, they're going to be touched. You know, as Christians, we celebrate this ancient story of redemption, but we have these amazing stories like yours that just so speak of God and God's ongoing work of redemption. It's just a, a, how sacred it is to hear this story and be a part of it. So thanks for sharing that here today. It's been my honor. Thank you for asking me, Ed. My Story of Addiction and Grace is a podcast production of the Center of Addiction and Faith, which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com. If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our pastor upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, That phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, 
or any other religious or business organization.